Let us pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, we pray that through your word we may be filled with joy unspeakable and we may know the peace that passes all understanding. These, your gifts to us in Christ Jesus and through your Holy Spirit. Amen. It's over. Jesus is dead. The disciples' hopes have been dashed. Here they had invested the last several years of their lives in following Jesus, hoping He would be the one to redeem Israel. They went all in on Jesus, but now it seems all is lost. There's no question Jesus is dead. The disciples know it. The women looking on know it. The centurion knows it. Pilate knows it. He is dead. On that dark Friday afternoon, the hopes of the disciples had unraveled. And now the disciples are in despair. From their perspective, in that moment, there was nothing that could be done. Rome was the victor. Jesus, the victim. Caesar was Lord and Jesus is not. Death had prevailed over the one they thought would be the Messiah. When Jesus was put into that tomb, they had to wonder, where is God? Where is God's Word of promise? Why has God fallen silent? Why won't He act? Has God forsaken us even as He seemed to have forsaken Jesus? Where are you, God? That's the question of the disciples. But it's not only the disciples who have a problem with the way the story of Jesus goes. Certainly if you look at it from their perspective, you see the problem. But even astute readers of Mark's Gospel, if you've been tracking with Mark carefully up to this point, astute readers of Mark's Gospel also have a problem at this point in the story. Because if you've been reading Mark's Gospel closely, Mark has clearly shown us that Jesus is, yes, the new Davidic King, but more than that, He's God in the flesh. He's not merely the human Messiah. He's God incarnate. But if Jesus is God, how are these events to be understood? For now, we have God crucified and buried. God in the flesh has died and has been put in a tomb. We've moved from the mystery of God on a cross to God in the grave. God interred. What are we to make of it? What does it mean? When we get here to the burial of Jesus, it is as if the whole story momentarily stops. Everything is paused. The pacing here is so important. All throughout Mark's Gospel in the first several chapters, Jesus was immediately doing this and immediately going there and immediately going here. He's a man on the move, a man on the warpath, immediately acting, acting so quickly. And then things do slow down quite a bit when we come to the trial and the death of Jesus. But now they seem to grind to a halt as Jesus is put in the tomb. Here God lays dead. The Lord sleeps on a bed of stone. The Word lies silent in the grave. The life of the world is dead and buried. Instead of the cry, long live the King, we have the followers of Jesus crying because Jesus has been put in a tomb and it's over. He is under the power of death and there can be no doubting that. Here in the tomb is the great 
mystery, the mystery of all mysteries. Jesus in His omnipotent weakness. Jesus in His glorious humility. Here, the One who has life in Himself, dead, a corpse. Why would the Almighty God, the, the Creator, allow His creatures to not only kill Him, but to bury Him? Lowering Him into the very earth He formed. Why? And even if we jump ahead, even if we jump ahead to the end of the story and say, okay, I know how this story ends. I know a glorious resurrection and an empty tomb are coming. We still have some hard questions to ask, some fair questions to ask about the burial of Jesus. See, if God's intent was for Jesus to die and then to raise Him from the dead, and this is how God would accomplish His salvation, we still have to ask, why this time lag between death and resurrection? Why not just raise Jesus immediately? Why not bring Him back to life right there on the cross? Why let the disciples linger in pain and darkness? Why let death and sin think they have won even for a day? Why not an instantaneous resurrection? Why does God take so long? Why does God wait to do what He has promised He would do? Why do Jesus and the disciples have to wait? Why does God let the world's word of condemnation stand over Jesus for a while before overturning that word with a verdict of vindication, vindicating Jesus in the resurrection? Why the wait? Why the time lag? I want to frame this for you as sharply and clearly as I can. Why is there this space in the story between cross and resurrection? What is the meaning of this space? Is it just empty space or does it fulfill some purpose? Why this day, this Saturday, this black Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Why this day between the days? If Good Friday and Easter Sunday are the two most momentous days in history since the creation, what is this day for? The day between the days. It's a Sabbath day. Indeed, it's been called Black Sabbath. It's a day of rest. It's also been known in church history as Holy Saturday. What is the meaning of this day? Why this day between the days? This bridge between Good Friday and Easter. Well, as you might imagine, I think God has a reason for this day. And while this day did look like a black Sabbath, it truly is Holy Saturday, even joyous Saturday, if we rightly understand. See, if we attend closely to Mark's details in this narrative about this day, we can begin to get a sense for why God waits. Why God times these events as He does. Why God gives us Holy Saturday. And indeed, why Holy Saturday is a gift. And when we see this, Holy Saturday becomes not only a crucial day in the story of the Gospel and the history of redemption, it really becomes a paradigm for understanding our own lives in the present because we too ask, why does God wait? Why does God not act now? Why is God making me linger in pain and darkness? See, really, our whole lives can be understood as taking place in Holy Saturday, in that space between Christ's cross and the final resurrection. We're in Holy Saturday every day of our lives. 
And so understanding Holy Saturday kind of makes it into a paradigm that helps us understand our own stories as we live between the cross and the final resurrection. We'll pick up here in verse 40 of Mark 15. Jesus has just breathed His last. Heartbroken women are looking on. They were close to Jesus during His ministry, but now they are at a distance. It's the same language that was used in uh, Mark 14.54 to describe Peter keeping his distance from Jesus as Jesus was being arrested and taken away. So Peter kept his distance out of fear. Now the women are keeping their distance out of fear. And I think Mark is underscoring for us this great fact. The utter aloneness of Jesus when He dies. His friends have deserted Him. His friends, male and female, the companions who are with Him, they have abandoned Him. And of course, even God has forsaken Him. He's cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He could have also cried out, My friends, My disciples, My followers, why have You forsaken Me? Jesus is utterly alone when He dies. Mark's account actually echoes Psalm 38.11 where the psalmist in the midst of his suffering writes, My companions stand afar from my plague. My kinsfolk stand aloof. Jesus suffering on the cross with the women distant, the, the disciples scattered, all alone. It's a fulfillment of the suffering of the psalmist once again. It's interesting, isn't it, that Mark says these women, as he describes them, had not only followed Jesus, they had served Him during His ministry along with other women in Galilee and in Jerusalem. They're deaconesses, as it were, serving the Messiah, uh, going along with Him sort of in His retinue, followers joining with Him, serving Him in various ways. But now, in the moment of Jesus' greatest crisis, they keep their distance. They can't serve Him. They won't serve Him. And we can fault them for that, surely. But actually, their failure is precisely the point. On the cross, Jesus is serving them. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, his mission statement, as it were, in Mark's gospel. He said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what's happening here. See, true disciples, first and foremost, must be served by Jesus. Before you can serve for Jesus, you must be served by Jesus. And that's what's happening here. Jesus serves the servants. Jesus is ministering on behalf of those who have ministered to Him. But He's doing so to lay a foundation so now they can go out and truly and faithfully serve on His behalf. He leads and they will follow. But He's got to go first. He's got to blaze the trail. First we are served by Jesus, only then can we in turn serve Him. That's gospel truth being played out here. The women are going to learn that truth, that they must be served by Jesus first before they can serve Him. Before you can go and do things for Jesus, you must know what He's done for you. That's the foundation. Before you can give, you must receive. Mark then introduces to us another character, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is the one who will act courageously and do what nobody else is willing to do at this point in the story. Joseph will take responsibility for getting Jesus' body off the cross and burying Him before the Sabbath. He will courageously take on what normally would have been a family responsibility at his own cost. He will treat Jesus as family, making sure His body 
is properly buried. We know from John's Gospel that Nicodemus, who was also a member of the Jewish council, helped him with this. This would not have been a one-man job. It would have uh, taken at least two, if not more, to get the body of Jesus off the cross uh, to do everything necessary to bury it. Now, the fact that Joseph here, his story is recounted, uh, it's very interesting to me the way this unfolds. There's a a fascinating parallel between Joseph here in Mark 15 and that unnamed figure back in Mark 14, verses 51 and 52. He pops into the story and he's gone just as quickly, just like Joseph. You have a young man in Mark 14 who really is, I think you could say, the anti-Joseph. Where Joseph here acts courageously, there, the anti-Joseph, that unnamed young man, acted cowardly. He's the anti-Joseph. He's a coward who runs away from Jesus. Whereas Joseph comes to Jesus. In Mark 14, that young man lost his priestly linen garment. Whereas Joseph here in Mark 15 wraps Jesus in a priestly linen garment. One is nameless, because quite frankly, he's not worth remembering. The other is named and is regarded as a hero here in Mark's Gospel. Because he courageously takes upon himself to do what even the disciples or even Jesus' own family members would not do. Take responsibility for Jesus' body. Joseph does what he does, we're told in verse 43, because he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He's a faithful believer looking for the coming of the kingdom. And at this point, if you had been able to interview Joseph at this point, at this point, he would have believed, I think, that Joseph uh, Joseph would have believed that even though Jesus had died, that God had been with him in some kind of special way, and therefore, as a servant of God, he was worthy of a proper and honorable burial. He had been wrongly put to death, so he ought to be buried rightly. And if you had asked Joseph, I think at that very moment, continuing with the interview, if you had asked Joseph, will Jesus rise from the dead? I have no doubt he would have said yes. Yes, he will rise from the dead at the last day. Jesus will rise with all of God's people. That's what it means to look for the kingdom of God. This man has resurrection faith. He has faith God's kingdom will come. But unlike the others, he hasn't given up. He doesn't despair. He doesn't act cowardly. He acts courageously. And so he acts on behalf of Jesus. Certainly Jesus' death would have left him saddened and perplexed. But even in the midst of his confusion and pain, even in the midst of the darkness, he's able to do what is right. And so Joseph is a model for us. I said Holy Saturday is a kind of paradigm for our own lives when we don't understand what God is doing. And God doesn't seem to be acting. God seems to be making us wait it out. What do you do? You be like Joseph. He shows us how to act in our holy Saturday situations. You keep on trusting. You keep on looking for the kingdom of God. You keep up with your resurrection hope. You do what is right. He is a rich man. Rich enough to own a tomb. Indeed, one newly cut and never before used. And he puts Jesus' body there with a stone sealing it shut. Isaiah Centuries before had prophesied that in the uh, servant of the Lord, in his death, he would be numbered with the transgressors. He would die among transgressors, common criminals, but in his afterwards he would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. And so here it is all fulfilled. 
Joseph had to go and ask Pilate's permission to take the body of Jesus down from the cross. And Pilate is actually surprised because Jesus has died more quickly than expected, more quickly than crucifixion victims normally would. But as we saw when we looked at at his death, this is not because Jesus was weak, weaker than most men. It's simply because he was sovereign over the moment of his death. This was no ordinary death. He chose to die. His life was not taken from him. He laid it down of his own will. He gave up his spirit. You know, I can't do that. We're not sovereign over our lives in that way. Pilate confirms his death with the centurion, and then he releases his body to Joseph. This probably would have made the other Jewish leaders angry that Pilate does this, but Pilate was probably uh, happy to have an opportunity to tweak them since uh, he had been pushed by them into crucifying a man he knew was innocent. So now Joseph has the body. He's going to take it and bury it. And Mark tells us the two Marys saw where Jesus was laying. And that's an important little detail because they're going to return to this very place early Sunday morning to find the biggest surprise of their lives. And we'll get to that uh, in due time. But we have, we have to deal with this question here. Why? Why does God have Jesus apparently remain under the power of death for a time? Why is such close attention given to the burial of Jesus? Indeed, isn't it interesting that Jesus' burial is always included when the great facts of the gospel are recounted? The gospel's a story. It's a story of great historical facts. It's a historical narrative. And the burial is always included whenever the gospel is summarized. His burial is mentioned in the great creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. It's right there in the sequence of events. His burial. It's there in Paul's great gospel summary in 1 Corinthians 15. We read it this morning. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. And then He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And indeed, when Peter is giving a gospel summary, preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 2, he cites Psalm 16, and he shows that that psalm is really about Jesus, and it says that he will be buried. And it says, of course, that God will not let his holy ones see decay. He won't rot in the grave. He'll be raised up, which is what Peter goes on to preach. But the burial is part of the story. It is obviously significant. It's significant Jesus is put in the tomb at the end of the sixth day of the week. Mark calls attention to that. It's the day of preparation. Preparation for what? Preparation for the Sabbath. Saturday, the the, the seventh day, the last day of the week. So this is the sixth day when he's actually put in the tomb. And of course, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and the account of the creation, the creation days, you find that man is created on day six of the creation week. The day man is created and given life now becomes the day God dies and is laid in the grave. The day that God made man out of the dust is the day that God himself is put in the dust. But it's interesting then, isn't it? We know as this story unfolds. Jesus spends the whole Sabbath day, the seventh day, resting In the tomb, Jesus' burial is really rightly understood as a Sabbath event. He spends the Sabbath in the grave. Which means that Jesus' grave, Jesus in the grave, in some way fulfills the meaning of the Sabbath. He's resting in the grave because His work has been 
finished. The mission he came for has been accomplished. And so this is his Sabbath rest. This is proof that his work is finished, that he accomplished his work. He's now resting because that's what God does. God works, and then when he's done, he rests. And so it is with Jesus here. Just as God rested from the work of creation on the seventh day, so the God-man rests from his work of recreation and redemption on the seventh day. And that's why Jesus himself is now our Sabbath rest. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will be your Sabbath. I will give you Sabbath blessing, what the Sabbath was all about. That rest and that blessing and that joy. I will give it to you. So his burial truly is gospel. It's proof that God offers to us Sabbath rest. Gospel rest. God himself rested once the work of achieving and accomplishing our salvation was complete. And there's a very real sense in which this is what our faith is. It's resting in what God has accomplished through his son. In fact, in one sense, you can really say it is as simple as this. Jesus' burial is obviously definitive proof that Jesus really died. Indeed, that's how the Heidelberg Catechism, one of those great Reformed catechisms, puts it. The, the, the question 41 asks, why was he buried? And the answer very simply is, his burial testifies that he really died. That's what burial is. It is the fullness and finality of death. Once you're, you know, we even have that expression, dead and buried. Because when you're buried, that's it. That means you really die. That's it. It's over. Jesus' burial is a historical fact. It proves his death. It proves he really did die on the cross. Which means then that his burial really demonstrates all those same things that his cross demonstrates. His burial demonstrates his death, which means the penalty due to our sins has been paid. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah, the new David and a new Adam. He is the representative of a new humanity. And so his story is now our story. What he does, he does for us. And so his burial is our burial. And so his burial means sin has been taken care of. The penalty of sin is death. The curse of the law is death. Jesus' burial proves he has paid the penalty. He has exhausted the curse. And indeed, that's why Paul says things like he does in Romans chapter 6. We were buried with Christ in baptism. It means we've really died with Him and in Him. So we can be raised to new life, as he goes on to describe further in Romans chapter 6. Colossians 2, he says the same thing. We were buried with Him in baptism. Why? That we might be raised to live a new kind of life. But we really died. We were buried with Christ in baptism. And so really you can say His burial is the culmination of His work of breaking sin, of vanquishing sin. When Jesus is buried, sin is buried. Sin's penalty is buried. Sin's curse is buried. You can say the curse of God's broken law was nailed to the cross with Jesus and died there. Very true. You can also say that curse was put in the ground with Jesus. It was buried with Jesus, never to come forth again. And so we who are united to Christ by faith and through baptism have buried our old selves. We have buried sin. We're now new creatures. We're members of God's new creation. Jesus' burial was the culmination of His humiliation. 
And therefore it is the point where sin and sin's penalty are finally finished off. Jesus' burial, you could say, put sin six feet under. Jesus has buried sin. He's buried the curse. He's buried the penalty. Sin deserved. Because Jesus was buried, we don't have to sin. We've been set free. In union with Christ, we are free from sin. We have the power in union with Christ to say no to sin because we're new creatures. Your old man is dead and buried. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You may you still sin, there's no doubt about that. But it's not of necessity. You can bury sin in your life. You can bury greed and lust and gossip. You can kick dirt over selfishness and impatience and pride. You can seal the tomb door shut on idolatry and unkindness and anxiety. Every sin in principle has been buried. And so Jesus' burial, just like His death on the cross and His resurrection, so Jesus' burial shapes the Christian life. It's integral to the Gospel. It's integral to your understanding of who you are in union with Christ. It is good news that Jesus was buried. Because it means sin's penalty and sin's power have been buried as well. But I think there's more to notice here. We can go on from this. Jesus' burial also sanctifies the grave for His people. It sanctifies burial itself. See, if God united Himself to humanity in Jesus' incarnation, and if God remained in union with Jesus' humanity in His suffering, death, and burial, that means God has united Himself to a human corpse that was put in a grave, then what does that do? That transforms our whole view of death. If God Himself has undergone death and burial, that transforms our view of death and burial. If God was with Jesus in the grave, then you can know He will be with you in yours as well. Which means there is no need to fear death. And when the fear of death is driven away, every other fear goes away too. Because all of our other fears are really just manifestations of that master fear, that mother of all fears, the fear of death. And once you no longer fear death, you can truly live fearlessly. This means death is not the end of the story. Oh, maybe the end of one chapter in the story, but it is not the end of the story. The story goes on and on forever. Death is not the period at the end of the sentence. It's more like a semicolon, and then the sentence just keeps on going, but it gets better and better. The sentence on the other side of the semicolon is glorified. The sentence of your life is going to go on. The grave is not the end. The tomb does not have the last word. In John chapter 5, Jesus says the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will, he will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. See, in Scripture, redemption is holistic. Redemption from sin is bodily. The whole person, body and soul, is saved and glorified. The burial of Jesus, just as His resurrection, just as much as His resurrection, testifies to this truth, this holistic redemption God has in store for us. Because Christ is raised, we will be raised. But that's because Christ is united with us in our death and burial as well. That's why when you go to a funeral, if it's a Christian funeral. Yes, it's a time of grief. And don't let anybody shortchange you that grief. There needs to be a process of grieving. I think our culture tries to take that away from us. 
We don't even call them funerals anymore. We call them celebrations of life. And I get that. There's a sense in which that's true. But we really do need to grieve. But at a Christian funeral, our grief is always bounded by this resurrection hope. By this resurrection hope, it puts limits on, on our grief. And that's why Paul says we don't grieve the way the pagans grieve. We know death is not the end. Burial is not the end. Christians, we look at a cemetery, we see cemeteries as gardens. The body put in the ground is really a seed. And just like a seed springs up out of the ground with new life, transformed, full of fruitfulness, so it will be with our bodies. Indeed, this is how Jesus described his own death and burial in John chapter 12. He says, unless a grain of wheat, so like a seed of wheat, he says, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus says you have to be dead and buried to produce this kind of fruit. When Christians are put in the ground, that's like putting a seed in the ground that's going to come forth more fruitful than ever in the future. Paul actually uses the same metaphor, the same analogy to describe our death and burial in 1 Corinthians 15. He says the body is sown. So his way of speaking of burial is to talk about a seed being sown. He says the body is sown in dishonor. So that's burial. But then he says it's raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. For Paul, death and burial, your body being put in the ground is like a seed being put in the ground and new life is going to spring up. George Herbert captured this so well. The, the great poet, he said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made death a gardener. Death's power over us no longer holds. Death used to be an executioner. Now death is merely a gardener. When you're buried, you're a seed put in the ground and you'll bring forth fruit in the resurrection. And that really brings us to, uh, I think, something very practical, a very practical implication that comes out of this passage. It's noteworthy, I think, the care and respect shown to the physical body, we could say the corpse, of Jesus. This is a very important detail here, the way Mark describes this. After Jesus died, so now what you have is the lifeless, dead body of Jesus. Mark says Joseph took him down. Not it, but him down. And then wrapped him in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb. That pronoun him rather than it is so crucial. The lifeless body of Jesus, the corpse of Jesus is called him. Now obviously in another sense, it's not him. Death means separation of body and soul. And the Apostle Paul says that at death we, meaning our souls, go to be with the Lord in heaven while our bodies obviously remain on earth. Paul says in another place, to depart the body is to be with Christ. He says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So there's a very real sense in which that body put in the ground is not you. Your soul has gone to be with the Lord. But there's also a very real sense in which you can say you are your body. And even after death, there is some sense in which your physical remains are connected to your identity in some way. Mark indicates that here. In this case, the hymn is the God-man. It's the God-man. It's the body of the God-man. But the respect shown for the dead, for the body of the dead, is not unique to this story in Scripture. Indeed, all throughout Scripture, we see dead bodies treated with care in the way they are buried. 
you have a whole chapter in Genesis. Isn't this interesting? A whole chapter in the Bible, a whole chapter in the foundational book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 23. A whole chapter devoted to Abraham haggling over a burial plot for Sarah in the land of promise. In fact, that tomb is the only piece of the promised land Abraham actually ever owned. But he bought that piece of ground to bury Sarah there in the hope that God's promises of land and resurrection would ultimately be fulfilled. The purchase of that burial plot was an act of faith. It was an act of hope. And of course it becomes a burial place for all the great patriarchs and matriarchs in the book of Genesis. Same is true actually in the passage we read in Genesis 49, towards the end of Genesis. Jacob tells his sons to take his bones from Egypt to the promised land for burial. Why did Jacob care where he was going to be buried? Why did it matter? Well, it mattered because the promised land mattered. The promised land was a a down payment, a, a sign of hope that they would ultimately inherit the new heavens and the new earth in the resurrection. It was a sign that God has made these promises that apply not just to our spirits, to our souls, but to our bodies and to this physical creation as well. And so having his body buried in the promised land was a sign of hope that yes, God is going to fulfill all these things for us. And of course, you see the same thing in the New Testament. Mary and Martha took pain to bury their deceased brother Lazarus. Now, Jesus is going to raise him from the dead, but they did bury him. And most significantly, of course, David says in Psalm 16, speaking prophetically of the Christ, you would not let your Holy One see corruption. David foretold that the Messiah would die and would be buried and would be raised before his body rotted in the ground. And this hope, this resurrection hope, has always shaped the funeral and burial practices of the church. Not because the resurrection of the body in some way depends upon the body being buried. Indeed, there's no law in Scripture that says every body must be buried at death. And that's not practical anyway. There are people who die at sea or get shred by wild animals. You can't bury the bodies in those kinds of cases. In times of plague, cremation is obviously necessary to keep the plague from spreading more. There's no law in the Bible against cremation. But here's the thing. This is what I think you see. This matters. It matters at the level of symbolism. Burial symbolizes our resurrection hope. Burial expresses a hope for new creation. In fact, it's very interesting. Mark uses a a curious term for the tomb in which Jesus' body is placed. English translations don't capture this. They just call it a grave or a sepulcher or something like that. But Mark actually calls the tomb a monument or a memorial. That's the word he actually uses. Tombstones and graves are memorials. They're, they're markers. They're, they're monuments to the hope that we have. Now, I don't think this means that tombstones are memorials in the same way that Scripture designates other things as memorials, like the rainbow, which is said to be a memorial of God's covenant with Noah, or the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ's death on the cross. But it's still interesting, isn't it, that the tomb in which Jesus is placed would be called a memorial. Memorials in Scripture are not primarily for our sake, for our remembrance. They're primarily there to remind God of His covenant promise. Memorials primarily memorialize God's covenant promises. It's not so much that they remind us, it's that they remind Him. 
memorials or ways of pleading the promises. That's what the rainbow is. The rainbow is a sign that God will remember His promise. He won't forget the promise He made to Noah. The Lord's Supper is a way we call on God to remember the promise He made to forgive our sins. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes as we do the Lord's Supper. Calling upon God to remember us, to remember His promises to us. But there's a lesser sense in which tombstones can be understood as memorials. Reminding God, calling on God to keep His promise to raise the dead. Tombstones are monuments to God's promise of resurrection, a sign that more is still to come. Indeed, churches used to have graveyards on their grounds for very good reasons, really just because of this. In fact, churchyard and graveyard used to be synonymous because this is where the graveyard would be found, is right outside the church. And so every time you came to church, you would have a visual reminder of death, you would have a visual reminder that the communion of the saints includes the dead in Christ as well as the living in Christ. Not so today. I never see a cemetery, really. Unless I intentionally go to a cemetery, I never see one. Today, we, we just don't come across the dead in the same way people used to. We have almost completely hidden the dying and the dead. We keep the dying and the dead out of sight. It is so easy in our world today to avoid dead bodies, to avoid the tombs of the dead. But this is not good. This is to our loss. There are so many advantages to keeping the dead in close proximity to the living. It sounds morbid, but it's actually incredibly enriching. For one thing, being confronted regularly with death, having these constant reminders of death, it's a way of putting a lot of things in perspective. In light of death, our little dalliances with sin don't seem nearly as attractive. When you have that constant reminder that death is coming, those little sinful pleasures we might be drawn to don't look so attractive anymore. Indeed, many of the worries and cares that we have each day begin to fade when we consider how fragile and transient our lives are here. When confronted with death, a lot of those things that get us so upset fade away because we realize they're really not that big a deal in the face of death. But if you keep the reality of death constantly hidden because it's unpleasant, then you can't get that perspective. You're not going to have that sense of proportion. And I think one reason modern people live such shallow and empty lives, one reason our culture is so full of petty and pathetic people is because our, in our culture we have completely insulated ourselves from the reality of death. We just ignore it. And we pretend like we can stay young and healthy and alive forever. And as a result, we are greatly impoverished. Previous generations of Christians did not have this problem. They encountered death regularly and they were the wiser because of it. They were surrounded by reminders of the shortness of life and they were wiser Remember, the early Christians during times of persecution especially would worship in the catacombs right alongside the dead. And when they were no longer a persecuted group and they were able to move into their own church buildings, sure, they left the catacombs behind in a sense, but they brought their dead with them. And that's why churchyards were graveyards. It's not because they were morbid. It's because they were realistic. They were utterly authentic. They wanted those reminders that we're all going to die, that to die is to gain, that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. They wanted reminders of their resurrection hope. 
It's good to see a graveyard. It's good to remind yourself that someday all those graves are going to be empty. That those very bodies are seeds that are sown. Charles Spurgeon used to take young people in his church to the graveyard and he would find tombstones of somebody who died just about their age. Just to say, look, you never know when God might take your life. Number your days. All right, that sounds morbid, but it's really authentic. It's realistic. Cemeteries are but nurseries of the new creation. The dead sleep, but Christ will awaken us all to new life at the last day. The dead have been planted like seeds, but they will blossom with resurrection life at the last day. And living with that hope helps us to endure with wisdom all the holy Saturdays and black Sabbaths of our lives. Those times we encounter when God seems silent because we live between Christ's cross and the final resurrection. Holy Saturday shows us God's silence is not the same as God's absence. God is with us in life and in death. Sometimes God makes us wait, even as Jesus and the disciples waited on Holy Saturday. But God always comes through. God gets the victory over death in the end. This is the good news of the Gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Christ's death, for His burial, and for His resurrection. For now, His story is our story. Father, we thank You for this sure hope that we have of resurrection life. May we not ignore the great reality of death. May we look death squarely in the eye without blinking. May we be courageous because we know that Jesus has conquered death, that you'll be with us in the grave and beyond, raising us to new life in the last day. This is our hope in Christ Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.